Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey everyone, this is Tucker Max, the author of I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. And if you want to learn how to build top-tier relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. It's pronounced Chapel, not Chappelle, as he just informed me. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place because this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Tucker, what's up, brother? Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Travis. Yes, sir. Of course. So I want to get right into it and build some context here. You are famous for the debauchery phase of your life with the book, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. And that was kind of one of the big things that initially broke out and now has sold over 2 million plus copies or something like that. And uh, so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about pre-debauchery phase, Tucker. And I would really love to start there and, and talk to me about you know, 11, 12 years old, you know, family life and uh, where you grew up and what was important to you at that point. Tell us about 11, 12 year old Tucker. Yeah. So I lived fifth and sixth grade. I lived in Lexington, Kentucky. I lived in a triplex. My mom and I lived in the top. The one was my grandmother and the other was my uncle. And I walked like a block to my element to James K. Polk Elementary School in Lexington, Kentucky. It was, eh, I mean, it was a pretty miserable time in my life. Mm. Like most of my childhood was not so fun. My mom at that point had stopped being a flight attendant for Pan Am. So she used to just leave for long, long periods. And then I'd be with my grandmother who was terrible and, and my uncle who was 
I mean, not so bad, but not great. So she was home, but then she was depressed and sad and broken. And, and so it was like, I was just around these three adults who were miserable yeah. and um, school was okay. I mean, it was fine. I've always been good at school. So funny. I have so many entrepreneur friends now. And the common story with almost all of them is that they were bad at school yeah. or they hated school or the school made them feel stupid. And it was like, guys, you just didn't understand school was a system you had to hack just like entrepreneurship or everything else. Right. And I just, I hacked the system pretty early. And so I always did well at school. I was in the gifted and talented program. It was funny. I got in my sixth grade year. For some reason, I wasn't gifted and talented in fourth and fifth grade. <laughs> sixth grade, I was somehow. Made no sense. But um, it's what happened. And so like that was, I was around like a lot of smart kids. So it was pretty cool. If I had to summarize it, I would say I was a pretty sad, lonely kid for the most part. Would you have described yourself as like being a nerd or like, did you ever identify no. with that social no. group at all? No, I was always in like the AP classes and whatever, but I was an athlete too. So okay. like you can't be a nerd if you're an athlete, at least in Kentucky, it's just impossible. You sure. may not be cool or you may not be whatever, I was always a weird kid in that, like, I was pretty good at sports, not great, but good enough that, you know, like, I, I played eight, ten letters in high school and, and bad, low-level college athlete, right? And then I was in all the gifted, talented AP classes, right? I mean, I was very good at school. And then also, like, had hot girlfriends sometimes, right? But I was never truly popular. Like mm. ever, like I was never unpopular, but I was never popular. I was like the rogue, yeah, you know, like sure. the kid that doesn't fit anywhere. Those kids are normally right. Recluses or nerds or, although nerds usually have their own group, right? Or the I, yeah. emos have their own group. I was never in a group ever in any school I was in. I was, even though I was an athlete, I was never like an athlete. And even though I was in the smart kids classes, I was never a smart kid. Like I was never in any of the groups because, you know, all group membership at some level requires subversion of self, the group. Mm. And I've never been good at that. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not my thing. Right. I didn't fit in the stereotypes. Anomaly, it seems for sure. Does it yeah. like very much somebody yeah. that fit into certain groups, but doesn't seem like you identified as any of those particular yeah, I, groups? I could fit into any, like, I mean, I grew up playing basketball in like real bad parts of Lexington. So like, it's funny, my CEO of my company is black and I'll do things and he's like, even if I didn't know, I would know you grew up with black people because you're the only black people put hot sauce on pork rinds. And I'm like, I never <laughs> thought of that, but you're right. <laughs> and he's right. I learned that like playing AAU ball, right? Yeah. With all my, I would be the white dude there. And so like, or like smart kids, you know, or my dad had a ton of, my mom was poor, but my dad had a bunch of money. So I'd spend time with my dad and I understood rich people. So it was like, I could go between any group and be part of any group, but I didn't identify as any. Yeah. I mean, that by itself though, is an extremely valuable communication skill, I would say to Absolutely. take in later life for sure, to be able to identify with multiple people groups, have different areas of expertise. Or to speak least, their language, to yeah, see the sure. world through their eyes. Yeah. At least mm -hmm. in a base level, even if you weren't like the best, you know, you still understand it to the point where you can have a conversation about it with somebody. And it's funny because I actually identify with a lot of the similar things and did all this stuff growing up and was good at school and basketball was my sport as well. Played all the city leagues and the only white kid on the team and all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting the type of dynamic that brings into your life because you do learn to get along with and communicate with a complete variety of people, which most people just, you don't really realize There's it. No concept on. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. 
most people just have their one group, whatever that group is, they, that's their group. And so when they try right. to learn how to communicate with people outside of it, it there's a disconnect there that uh, maybe you might not have had. So obviously something that affected your life later on, it was, it was a plus, but obviously also came with some negatives, which are what led into some of maybe the decisions that you were making in your early 20s, right? So you end up extremely good at school, you end up getting into a really good school, and then graduating, you said summa cum laude, right? In three years. From the University of Chicago, in three years. I got an academic scholarship to a top 10 law school. As a white, As a white dude. The Duke, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so right, to, yeah. yeah, which is one of the most prestigious law firms in the country, full academic scholarship, go there, get out, get a job at one of the largest law firms representing Google and Facebook and Silicon Valley, and then two yeah. weeks later, you get fired, right? Can you tell me yeah, a little bit about It was that? two and a half weeks, so okay. let's, let's <laughs> be sorry. fair. My bad, my bad, yeah. <laughs> I give, give you a little bit more there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I like basically, man, I was 24 or something, 25 at the time. I was about as emotionally disconnected at that point in my life as you can be. You know, I mean, most young guys are pretty emotionally disconnected, but I was... I don't know what you're talking about, bro. Yeah, yeah right. I, I was <laughs> extreme even for young guys. And so I hated everything about being a lawyer. Everything about it was antithetical to who I am as a person. Mm. But... I didn't have anything approach. I had no zero percent self awareness. So it was like, oh, of course I'm going to go to law school because coming out of academics and whatever, it's like the prestigious thing to do, and and I'm going to make a ton of money and I get to be important and blah blah blah, like all the dumb shit that young guys tell tell themselves that yeah. they're supposed to do. And so, or young guys who've bought that lie, and I had at that point, sort of, it was almost like my body was like, no, we're not going to do this, <laughs> right? Or my unconscious. There was a part of me that was like okay, asshole, if you're not going to wake up and see what you really need to do, then we're just going to force this on you. Yeah, and right. it was like, I could not have been more reckless and ridiculous at that place. Like, it was like, I dared them to fire me. Yeah. And they did the right thing. They yeah. stepped up and fired. Like, I even today. say it in the yeah. story, right? Like, I'm not even mad at them. Like, I deserved it. Yeah, <laughs> I would have fired me too. <laughs> so after you lose that job, I'm sure that's something that your mom and your family was really stoked about to see that you go through and like maybe you're getting out of all the stuff that you grew up in and like maybe some of the disadvantages that you might have had growing up. And then you break out of that due to this, this intellect that you had and the hard work that you put in during school or hacking the system, whatever you want to call it. But then two weeks into your first job, you're like, ah, yeah. Nah. Uh, <laughs> so what happens after that? What, what's like next step after you get that? Well, so after that, my dad owns a bunch of restaurants in South Florida. And so I went to work for my dad in the family business. It took my dad about six months to fire me from the family business. <laughs> no, seriously. Like my name's on the door. The company, like the restaurants were called Max's Grill. <laughs> I was fired from them. Yeah. Not because I did a bad job. I did a phenomenal job. But because, again, two different factors intersecting, a couple different factors. I hated it and I wouldn't admit it to myself or whatever, right? Yeah. And so I was reckless and all this other stuff. But then also, because it was my dad and because I was right about it, came in and realized there's a ton of changes we could make. We could scale this. Like he had the next cheesecake factory on his hand if he wanted to. And I'm like, let's scale this. Let's go. The problem was everyone that worked for him, it was more than one restaurant. It's like multiple restaurants. So he had like an administrative, you know, managerial layer. Everyone that worked for him were shitty, incompetent thieves. Mm. But they did one thing really well. 
that I didn't understand. If you want to know what my dad's like, think Donald Trump, but not as rich or as smart, right? And so (laughs) all the same narcissism, right? Like everything in Trump's world is, if you like me and you're for me, then you're okay. And if you're against me, you're bad. And that's it, right? Whether you like Trump or dislike Trump, that, that's just like a clear Personality sort of, profile. Right, yeah. exactly. My dad's very much the same way. Although my dad's not as smart in terms of like manipulation of media, but my dad's like much more intellectually intelligent and much yeah. more sophisticated and has much better taste than Donald Trump, obviously. And his whole company was people who fed into his ego and his narcissism. Yeah. And I saw that immediately, of course. And I was like, okay, well, well what does that matter? He's my dad and I'm right. So, and I like, so like I told these people, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get all you fired because you're all incompetent or thieves or both. Yeah. I didn't quite understand office politics. People don't generally (laughs) like that. Yeah. Or narcissism. Really. I didn't really quite get it that they were there for a reason. It wasn't an accident that my dad kept all them. And so in the battle that ensued, they won and they won handily. And they got my dad to fire his own son from the family business. And like, I did just enough stuff wrong that like they had, oh, well, Dennis, he was doing this and he was this and blah, blah, blah. And so like my dad fired me. That's when I really had to kind of sit back and be like, well, what the fuck, right? Like the two things I've trained for, I have been like ejected from, (laughs) right? Both. And honestly, man, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, truly. And two of my friends from law school who are in, in all my books, they were like, look, man, you're obviously not so good at law and you're not so good at business. The emails you write us are the funniest things we've ever read. Like, this is the funniest shit I've ever read in my life. You need to do this. And I'm like, what? be a writer? What am I, a bitch? Like, what the? They're like, yeah, apparently, because that's the thing you do well. Yeah. So just go with it. And I did. From there, I mean, it's a crazy up and down roller coaster story. I sent all my stuff out to every publisher, 100% rejection, 95% ignore, and then like form rejections mostly. And then I get like four or five like personalized rejection letters where people are like, you should never write an email again. This is the worst thing. Like you need to kill yourself. (laughs) No, seriously, personalized rejection letters of people telling me like to never touch a keyboard again. Like I don't normally respond to these, but I felt this needed me to respond. So please beg you, never write. Exactly. And believe it or not, those actually, you know, people like, oh, fuck the haters. I didn't use that as energy against them. I was like, hold on. If they're reacting that way, that means there's something here. And then also, I'd already started getting my stuff forwarded back to me from friends and other social circles. Like my friends in the law school would forward it to their friends and it would go through all these law firms and come back mm-hmm. to me. I'm like, okay, these people whose entire job it is, is to publish books, don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, because there's and, clearly uh, some audience somewhere. Just wasn't right, any people. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I uh, put all my stuff up because this is 2001, 2002. I put all my stuff up on the internet for free before the word blog existed as a term. This is like when you had to use like GeoCities to go on the internet, right? This is yeah, so like, long ago. Like you have to hard code your own right. HTML, for real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I yeah. really did. And so, uh, and the site took off. The internet had 40 million people on it, right? Now it has 4 billion, but it was like, uh, it took off. And then, you know, publishers came back and then this and that. There's, there's so many ups and downs. Book comes out January 2006, hits the New York Times bestseller list out of nowhere because I had an email list, right? And no mainstream media covered me. No one took it seriously. And then it, two weeks on the list, fell off. Sales bottomed out at about 900 books sold per week, which is still a lot. Yeah. About eight months later. And then it started climbing back up. And then it went 
back on the list in May of 2007 and stayed on for five years Wow! Uh, after that. So six total calendar years on the list, almost 300 total weeks or something crazy, 250 total weeks, just that one book, not counting the others. I mean, it was like Harry Potter. Like it was just all, except I didn't write seven books, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't write for kids. So J.K. Rowling was much smarter than me. <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, right. But I sold a ton and ton of books. It was exactly what a certain audience wanted to hear and never heard before, you know? Was there anything that you can point to that caused the uptick back up onto the list? It's funny. A lot of people think like I got credit for being like this amazing guerrilla marketer because I did all these stunts and all this ridiculous stuff. I think people got it wrong, including me. I used to think that those things got me the attention. And now looking back, the evidence was there at the time. I just didn't want to see it. I wanted to believe in my own genius. But the reality is all those stunts either didn't work or actually worked against me. Mm. The thing that worked is because the book was awesome. Yeah. I wrote a book that was really funny and people liked it and wanted to share it with their friends. And it was perfect timing. Exactly. Of course. It was the right thing to say at the right time. Of course. Yeah. I want to go a little bit back on this and, and touch on something because we kind of glossed over it. You said you started writing, at least uploading stuff online when you were, you know, 2001, 2000, 2001, but then the book didn't come out till 2006. Just want to take a second to highlight this for listeners, just because I think a lot of times people can get so wrapped up and like, man, I feel like I've been putting out content. I've been, or I've been writing or I've been podcasting. Or I've been, you know, fill in the blank. Right. And it's like three months. Right. Yeah, exactly. For, for seven <laughs> months now. And nobody listens. And it's like, well, I mean, you took five years of just writing all the time, uploading to like something that wasn't even called a blog at the time before social media existed, before you had friends to share it with. And then after that, finally published the book after you got 500 plus rejections from people that were saying this isn't going to sell. Like, I just feel like I'm required to touch on that because I want it to be something that people think about and consider before you get all down in the dumps about the thing that you've been trying for the last three weeks and how it hasn't gone viral yet. 100% agree. The one thing I would say though is, so I had a lot of positive feedback too, right? Like Mm -hmm. you like to highlight the negative stuff because it's kind of funny and and all that's true. But like, like I said, I was getting my own emails forwarded back to me, right? So like if you're writing, a lot of people like they'll be writing stuff for a long time and I'll look at it. I have a company that helps people write and publish books now. We're real big. We did David Goggins book and Tiffany Haddish's and got on the list, right? And um, people will come to their stuff and I'll be like, yeah, he's like, this hasn't got any traction. I'm like, right. It makes sense. It's not very good. <laughs> and, and I, here's how I define good though. Good is not defined as what my personal opinion of good is. I think Fifty Shades of Grey is terrible. A hundred million women disagree. Mm. So who cares what I think, right? There's one definition of good. Does this resonate with other people? Do they take value from it? Do they want to engage with it? Do they want to share it? If the answer is yes, even on a small scale, then you may have something. And yeah, it may make sense to keep working in that case, so I had a lot of positive early feedback, but you're right. It took me years to actually break out. Oh, hell yeah. And I had a lot of positive early feedback and still took me years, right? So yeah, your point's exactly right. But do not think, well, if I just put in the work, quote the work, meaning I show up and write something, then everything's going to be great in five years. No, like, because what you're doing is you're creating stuff for other people. And if it doesn't resonate with them, then you need to work harder on that and fix it or shift to something else, right? Yeah. Like uh, I'm a big believer in quitting things that aren't working. Mm, yeah, uh, and we're getting fired from them. 
That's not quitting. (laughs) That's being ejected from them. (laughs) That's true. true. (laughs) So to get a little bit back into your story then, okay, first book, massive success to say the least, selling millions of copies, which on a first book from any author, I mean, is an incredible, incredible feat. And like you said, a mixture of the skill and the time that you had put into working with it, the fact that the message resonated with the audience, the fact that it was a good story, but also there's a little bit of luck and then you sprinkle in a little bit of timing and then you have this amazing big success that comes out of it. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. This is the point in your life where, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you really start to consider the self-help personal development type journey of life instead of just the kind of the, almost the written comedy form that you, that you were doing. And it was really interesting to me to go through your story in, in preparation for this because it's just a dichotomy because you got really, really famous for being you know, famously the guy that didn't care about any of the you know, deeper stuff about life. You got famous for being the like debauchery 20-something dude that's just like doing all the stuff that all the other 20-something dudes want to be doing. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and then after that is really what, that's what like propelled you to getting into changing a lot of those things, which then in turn, like almost disappointed the very people that helped you get to the, it's just this totally like this big old, yeah. you know, mind, mind fuck, if you will, just it is. thinking through it. So it's a total mind fuck. You're hundred percent right. Yeah. Can you walk me through like your mentality and, you know, kind of start to finish there briefly? All right. So basically the, the book takes off and then I write there's a movie made about my life in my first book. Didn't do very well, but it was still a big Hollywood release movie with famous actors and whatever. And then I did two more books, three more actually, kind of, but uh, about frat tire, like that uh, comedy. Without going in, because that whole long, huge story there, but it really all boils down to, I got to a point 
where I had all the success and money and women and fame I could ever dream of. I had way more than I thought I ever needed, right? Because when you're poor and broke and anonymous, you think if I just have some money or just have some fame, everything will be fine. And then you kind of picture what you need, right? Or what you dream of. And I got way more than what I thought I needed. And having money is always better than being broke. <laughs> he was nice. Yeah, right. But it was. Like, I'm not going to be rich like, and miserable than poor and miserable. Yeah. Exactly. I was like 3% or 10% happier, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and everything in my life was better. And I was 10% happier. And I'm like, okay, this is a problem. So then I fixed everything else, you know, got in amazing shape and this and that. And like, you, you know, you always start with personal development with physical stuff because it's external, it, you know, it's narcissistic. And I, man, I, I was, you know, 8% body fat or whatever, you know, ripped abs, I, amazing. I felt a little better. Yeah. But it's still, you know, maybe 11% happier instead of <laughs> like, not, like not much. And so eventually I did so much where I got to the point where it was like, okay, at some point I got to realize it's me. Like it's inside. It's nothing external. There is no, nothing I can do externally that's going to change how I feel. And so then I started, I'd known for a long time I needed to do therapy. I finally started and I spent four years in psychoanalysis, which is a type, a type of talk therapy. But I mean, like I went in, I went four days a week for four years. It was wow. no joke. And um, that was great. I mean, it helped me a lot. It really gave me a great map of my, of my life and my emotions and whatever. But it was like having a map of Manhattan doesn't really tell you what Manhattan's like. You kind of got to walk the island, you know? And the equivalent would be like knowing what you feel and feeling what you feel are totally different things. And so like I had to kind of dive in and start feeling. I had no idea how to do that. And I did a bunch of stuff that like I thought was working but didn't really. Meditation was is pretty cool for a while. It's funny. I thought I was doing meditation wrong. So I stopped. It turns out I was doing it right which is why it was overwhelming for me. I couldn't handle because all the emotions were coming up. And I'm like, like, I can't ever sit there and be calm and still. I must be doing meditation wrong. It's like, no, you're doing it exactly right. Keep going. But I couldn't understand that at the time. And then, you know, I tried everything else, yoga, whatever. Most of it was terrible. I hated it. And then some buddies of mine, a couple of them who were very famous, had been telling me, like, look, you need psychedelics. Like, psychedelic therapy is the thing. And I was like, no. Like, I remember having conversations, like, five years ago. And I I remember them saying the words to me, but it was like it just didn't register. And then about two and a half, two about two and a half years ago, I had a conversation. It was like, I was just ready. And I was like, all right, let's go. And so almost exactly two years ago, I did my first MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Dude, it blew the doors off, man. It completely changed the game. It was like as soon as it hit me, you know, like you take it, it takes a little while to kick in. But as soon as it hit, because I'd never done any drugs in college or anything, nothing, only alcohol. And so, like, I got my eye shade on. I'm in this, you know, I wrote a whole piece. You can Google Tucker Max MDMA. I wrote, like, a 9,000-word piece about my first two sessions. But uh, I'm sitting, I'm laying on this sofa in New York in this woman psychologist's whatever office. And, like, all of a sudden, I feel a depth. I I didn't know what love felt like until that moment. Like, I was like, oh, my. I didn't know I could feel like that. It was almost like I just understood everything all at once. Although I can't tell you what it was, right? It wasn't like a human, like intellectual, rational understanding. It was crazy. And then, man, the trauma came. And then it was like, oh, fuck. And so I've spent the last two years, really the first year and a half, really diving in and staying, like, like processing all the trauma from my childhood that I had no idea was there. 
look, some people go through this and they realize they had serious sexual or physical abuse that they blocked out or that they dismissed or they knew about but hadn't really dealt with. I didn't really have any of that, at least that I know of. What's all come up for me is mainly just like all the loneliness and the, the neglect, which is horribly traumatic to young kids. Like, I don't know if you have kids. I have kids. I have three. And you can't leave them alone for more than a few seconds in the, before they freak out and panic, right? I was alone a lot as a kid. Not objectively unsafe, probably, but you don't understand that as a kid. My 18-month-old my doesn't understand that if his mom leaves a room, he isn't going to die. Like, he, know, he doesn't know she's right there and everything's fine, so he freaks out and panics and crawls to her. I spent a lot of time freaked out and panicked with no one coming. And um, in addition to well, a lot of other stuff. And so it just takes a long time to feel all that. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kirk that explains all this. He's a doctor in, in Boston who's one of the main researchers for trauma. And I read that and I was like, oh, that book and another book called The Drama of the Gifted Child by this woman, Alice Miller, explained my whole childhood to me. Like in a way that like I was, I was like, how is this not required reading for people? And, um, and so that's what I spent the last two years really doing is diving in, feeling all the emotions I didn't feel, processing all the trauma I didn't and couldn't process as a kid. And it's crazy, man. It's crazy the difference. Like if being rich and famous made me 10% happier, processing all my trauma has made me 50 or 70% happier. Like wow. it's exponentially better in all ways, all aspects of my life. I mean, I have a wife, three kids. We have such a great life, a great relationship. I'm such a great dad compared to what I was, you know, was given. I'm sure I can be a much better dad and there's better dads than me, but relative to what I was shown and how my parents showed up for me, my kids don't have any of the issues I have. They're loved. They have secure attachments. You can see they have, like, they don't have any of that stuff. It's like really great, you know? And, um, it just, man, it took me turning around and feeling these feelings. And I, I, not every, listen, there's plenty of people who can deal with their stuff without psychedelic therapy, but um, it's been magical for me. Yeah, almost like an accelerant. To, yeah, to it really is. Quicker, yeah. It, no, not necessarily accelerant in terms of makes it go faster. I had spent so long pushing my feelings away mm. that I, I really didn't know how to feel them. Until you and have that depth of feeling. What psychedelics there. do is they kind of, and I mean this very loosely, they get your ego out of the way and they connect you with yourself and with what you feel, with what's actually there. Dude, my first five MDMA sessions were mainly somatic release, meaning like my body was just shaking, right? Like it was the fight or flight, the flight response from all the terror I had as a kid and very... It was the terror coming out. Like when your body has that reaction, if you don't express it, it, st it stores up. It stays inside. Like that's not, this is all very well established stuff. Like uh, there's a whole thing about that. Like it's so funny. Like we don't understand any of this stuff. With zoo animals, right? This is in Body Keeps the Score, but basically in this one game park, like it, it, when they take animals in and have to give them shots or whatever. They'll like hit them with, you know, the stun darts, right? When they're up, they have to let them, once they recover, they've got to leave them there for a second and let them shake off all their, all the fear and the, the, the fight or flight. If they don't, they, the animal dies, wow. right? Humans don't quite die. Like we have different adaptive mechanisms, but it's the same thing. Like you ever see a, a video or like a, a nature show, a cheetah chases a gazelle it misses it, right? And then you see the gazelle and you'll see like once it kind of stops, it'll, it'll start shaking and it'll kind of like shake all that off. That's, that's all of the, let's call it 
this is not exactly correct, but for the sake of the conversation, that's the excess adrenaline and the norepinephrine and the other stuff that, the, from the flight response, right? Mm-hmm. It's got to get that out. It's got to move that stuff out, right? Because it was super adaptive. It needed it to get escape from the cheetah. Yeah. Cheetah, you know, goes somewhere else. It's got the excess in. It's got to get it out. In humans, if you don't get that out, it stores up in you, mm-hmm. right? And, and it impedes you in any number of ways. And uh, I had no idea. This was like so breathtaking. I, you couldn't have explained this to me three years ago. I'd have been like, I kind of understood this, but like, I'm like, eh, that just sounds like a bunch of hokey woo-woo nonsense. <laughs> Until I literally right. had to spend five fucking sessions of six hours a piece shaking and sweating and mm-hmm. crying and feeling all this stuff and having it come out. Yeah. And wow. now, now I take MDMA, if I do MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, it's none of that. Like I'm, I'm at a different level. I've gotten all that stuff out. Listen, five sessions of that is extreme. Most people don't have that much in them. I'm an extreme case. Yeah, from bottling it up for yeah. a really long time. Right, seriously, yeah. Yep. Which is bound to happen at some point, right? It's going to express itself in some way or another. So it's Well, it did when I was young. What, how did I deal I, with that? Exactly. I drank a lot. I hooked up a lot. I was reckless. I was, all of the maladaptive behaviors were yeah. not actually maladaptive. They were ways to, to navigate my neurological function at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was the only way I knew how. Did you ever seek out or search for or dive into any sort of like religion or anything during any of that? No. Just was never an option, never presented itself to you, didn't have an No, it was an option. I mean, I was an altar boy in in an Episcopal church, right? So it was like, yeah, Episcopal is like not really religion. It's like a social club. And so it was like, but yeah, like I was in church every Sunday, but it never occurred to me that anyone actually believed in that because it was transparently not true. Like obviously, and then now I've grown up and and matured, I realized a couple things that a big problem with religion is that religion is supposed to be symbolic and it's supposed to be a guide to help each person find their own, find the God inside of them, right? And have their own experience. But what religion has done is codified that and divorced it from them. And now we all imitate someone, Jesus's experience, which makes no sense at all. Right. So I'm, what I've done the last two years is the thing you're supposed to do in religion, which is find my own ecstatic experience and the God inside of me. Dude, I haven't even talked about psychedelics, man. Yeah. Like once I moved into true, because MDMA is not a true psychedelic. It's kind of a different class of drugs. Once yeah. I moved into the true psychedelic therapy, oh, dude, I totally believe in God now, but yeah. not in the religious sense of you yeah. would think of as God. Like if you think of God as like a, a oneness, like the all-encompassing energy or something like that, totally. 100%. That's a really interesting interesting point to bring up because you, we're talking about internal versus external and that's exactly what a lot of religion does is it takes something that should be an internal game and externalizes it and turns it into a long checklist of items that you got to right. go through. To Where you sure imitate make- someone else's right. experience instead right. of having your own. Right, which is a recipe for misery and this. disaster and hypocrisy runs. Social around. control is why, why they do it. Sure. Like if a priest is in charge of your experience, then a priest gets to be in charge of you. Mm. Yeah. Quick context too. I grew up in an extremely religious environment, very much a religious bubble culture, graduated kindergarten from the same campus I graduated college from. I was there my entire life basically. My God. So that's why I asked that question uh, because this whole conversation is always a very intriguing conversation to me. And I try to have it with as many people as I can that have uh, have gone really deep into this. Have you read The Gospel of Jesus by Stephen Miller? No, I have not. 
So, you know, what's funny is I never used to, I just had no, I wasn't a big anti-religious person. Like I didn't have a Catholic family shaming me or anything, but I was never into it. And then like about a year and a half ago or about a year ago, I did LSD and MDMA, which is a great combination. I don't recommend starting there. Start with pure MDMA, but um, LSD and MDMA is a great combo when you advanced a little because LSD kind of strips off the veneer and you kind of see reality. And it was like, I don't want to say I talked to God, that's not accurate, but I had a, a, a deep, meaningful experience of sort of uh, oneness with the universe, right? And felt the God inside of me, not that I'm a God, but you know, like we're all, like Jesus said, we're all children of God, right? We all that's what he meant. Place, right, right. So we're all, yeah. And so uh, like I studied a little bit of New Testament Jesus stuff in college, more from a humanities perspective. Yep. And it was like all at once, I was like, oh, Oh my God, Jesus was exactly right. Everything, because it all, like literally the words came across my face. The kingdom of heaven is within. And I was like, oh fuck, now I know exactly what he means. Now I get it. And everything he said makes perfect, complete sense. And I totally agree with And it's totally been twisted by whatever religion for whatever purpose. But if you actually look at his words, and Stephen Miller wrote an amazing book called The Gospel of Jesus, where he takes like the Gnostic Gospels and all the different interpretations and the different translations and tries to come up with what, based on the texts, what we can be pretty confident Jesus actually said and didn't say. Dude, it was a game-changing book. Like, it's funny now. uh, I talk to religious people. I reference that. I'm like, well, the gospel of Jesus says, and they're like, what is the, there's no gospel of Jesus. I'm like, I'm not sure. John, Jesus? Yeah. (laughs) See, but those, all those gospels are supposed to be, like, they're all different interpretations or whatever of what Jesus said. And probably, as far as we know, all written long after uh, Jesus died. Maybe, maybe not, right? But, like, you work those in, you really look at the differences of the between those and the translations between those and you look at the gospel of thomas and some of the other gnostic gospels right i think you can pull out a gospel of jesus that all springs from the idea that we are it's a very buddhist idea but it, it's very it, with the big difference of love thy enemies and all the other kind of stuff yeah. but it, it's the king it's all summed up with the reason they killed them the kingdom of heaven is within because yeah. that, unpack that statement that means you don't need any of the priests you don't need the pharisees you don't need any of those people right. that they're standing between you and god and in fact god is not a place you go it is not a thing you reach it is there inside of you ready whenever you are ready and willing to accept it Right? I mean, I can go through the whole, it was, it's, it's like it all made sense right away, it, but it yeah. took LSD for me to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm going through um, meditations right now uh, from Marcus Aurelius. And I've, you know, grew up in that, in that bubble. And in my degree, I've double majored in college, Bible and church ministries were, were my two majors in college. And so obviously I have an extreme understanding of Bible is a religious book, but in terms of all other forms of external philosophy that might go against what the Bible has to say, I never was educated on any of that kind of stuff. So now it's just kind of been this journey that I've been on personally. And uh, it was really interesting going through the meditations and understanding that the same word that Marcus uses in the market, in, in the meditations for like providence or even I think self sometimes or the gods or God, like that same word is the same word that the Bible uses with the word word when it says like the word was in the beginning was the word was the word was with God and the word was God. It's a capital W word, which is the word logos in Greek which basically means the same thing that God is, which is like the all like 
powerful, knowing being oneness, sense of oneness. Exactly. And yeah. uh, they're all talking about the same thing. It's just that, you know, I, I think through thousands and thousands of years of being passed on from generation to generation, people try their best to try to interpret the text and take it in a, in a, in a far more literal sense than what it was actually meant to be taken by and then misconstrue it into a thousand different religions that all come from the same book. That, that's the thing that always blew my mind about it when I started kind of getting away from them. It's just like, how can we all be studying, examining, reading, researching the same exact book? And there's 50 different religions that come from it. That is mind blowing to me. There's obviously like, there's not just one person that has the answer that is the truth of all the 50 different people. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like if God's not the author of confusion, then how could we be so confused by this? It seems to be so contradictory, you know? Dude, I'm with you. A hundred percent, man. I couldn't put the pieces together. And what's funny is like, it's not, I didn't learn this intellectually, like on LSD. It was like, it showed it to me. It was, it was almost like it was already in my brain. And it was just like, there you go. And I was like, ah, how did I not see this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that's so true. Well, I, I want to chat with you a little bit about uh, relationship building and stuff, Tucker, before we sign off here. This is the Build Your Network podcast, and we talk about a lot. I know that uh, you've had a lot of uh, relationships in your life that you've looked back to, reflected on, people that have helped you, and then you've been able to help as well. So this is the question that I kind of ask to every single guest I've ever had on to move that conversation head in that direction. Who you know or what you know, which of those two do you think is more important and why? It depends on what we're, for what? In your version of success in life, is it more important to focus on the who or is it more important to focus on the what? Which one of those is going to bring you more of what your definition of success would be? Well, I mean, that's an easy answer for me because I don't think what matters. Like the what doesn't matter at all. All that matters is the who. Mm. my, My definition of success is I spend my time doing things that matter with the people I love. Yeah. Yeah. So At like, the the day, that's I it. mean, the what kind of matters, I guess, yeah. but only in service of the who, yeah. you know, like uh, to me, the only thing that matters is the relationships I have with the people I love. That's it. There is nothing else. Everything else is in service of that. Yeah. And like, I, because I'm good at doing stuff and I'll, I like to do stuff for them and with them. I'm not sure that what it is would matter that much. Yeah. You know, like, I think that's a good way to say it though. It's in service of the who. Yeah. Because you're really good at what you do, you're able to build something that's awesome for the who in your life that you, that you built a life by design that you get to wake up. Hold on. But but this is not a dual thing. When I say build something for them, I mean our relationship, right? Like, this house is nice. It's nice to have a nice house. I don't give a shit. Like uh, it's never about anything external. It can't be anything external from us and our relationship. Like me and my wife and me and my kids and me and uh, the people I love. Like the external stuff is nice, I guess. And it's cool, but it's not. I always wonder if it's if it's more of a distraction than it's worth. That's a long, ongoing debate, right? But um, that you know, that's thousands of years old. I will say, the older I get, the less I care about stuff or things or what and or how, and the more I focus on who, and I mean a smaller number of who's too. Like, who do I love and who loves me, and that's it. Do you have any advice for maybe someone out there who is totally on board with the philosophy of what you just said, but maybe is having trouble with some of the relationships in their life in terms of like, how would you advise people to navigate 
being more honest or, you know, what, what do you view as being the valuable thing there? Yeah. So that's a tough thing to give general advice. Here's the, the thing I would, I would say as much as I love America and Western civilization in so many ways, the reality is, and this is true for the whole world. So this is not like a criticism of the West. We are a bunch right now, a bunch of severely traumatized monkeys living in a civilization that is not built to suit us, right? How it got here, why it got here is a bunch of accidents and a bunch of this and that, whatever. And it almost doesn't matter. And so like asking, how do I deal, how do I have better relationships is sort of like saying, how do I make my bed better in my room on the Titanic? You know, you got to get off the fucking ship. You're worried about the wrong thing. And so like, uh, so the first question I would ask is me. It's what I did in my life. I would ask, how am I showing up? How am I showing up, not just with them, but with myself? Have I taken real responsibility and accountability for who I am, for what I feel, for healing myself, right? And for me, the answer was no until about six, seven, eight years ago. I really hadn't. And I really started my journey maybe 10 years ago because I'm 45 now. So maybe about 35. I started my journey of really taking serious accountability and responsibility. I started very slowly. <laughs> I've only really kind of ramped up. And so like before you can even talk about relationships, you've got to first take full responsibility for yourself, right? Like my wife and I have this saying, we don't have relationship problems. She has her problems and I have my problems. And sometimes, often, those problems intersect with our relationship and cause other problems, right? But we don't have a relationship problem. Yeah, that was- and so. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was exactly honestly where I was hoping you would take the conversation forward because that is the ultimate answer to that question. And the advice that I give to a lot of people is that it starts with you. Exactly. And a lot of people look for relationships to fix what's going on internally. Like even they, they want to fix other people or they want other people to organize themselves in a way that makes them feel better. It's yes, like, no, right, motherfucker, exactly. start with yourself. You must be the opposite of how most people in the world are right now. I am a big believer that black lives matter. I am a, a huge, I cannot stand the organization called Black Lives Matter. They're an example of just one example, right? And this isn't a race thing. It, I'm just talking about a group that is blaming everything on other people, right? And you can say the same thing about Antifa. You might even say the same thing about like the serious, like uh, crazy Trumpers, right? On either side. Sure. They, if you think your problems are because of someone else, you are the actual problem. And that applies to everyone in all ways. Individual responsibility. All growth and all healing begins with taking full responsibility for yourself. It begins with a complete rejection of, the, of victimhood and a victim mindset. And listen, I'm not saying, so many people hear that and they're like, but my mom did hit me. I'm not saying you have to say that didn't happen. Yeah. You can, people can hurt you. I could just spend a whole podcast talking about traumas that were inflicted on me. That happened. Those exist. Wasn't my fault. Yeah. I was a victim of my grandmother, right? Or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But like, guess what? Guess who's responsible for fixing that? Right, exactly. Me. Well, what's the next me. step? It's right? my like, life. You either don't ever do anything about it, blame it on that forever, and continue living life and saying like, well, I've just, just I, this is the hand I was dealt. Your life's so over, well actually. Life. Yeah, right, exactly. Your life's There's over if you adopt a victim mindset because you can't grow and you can't change. There's nothing within your control if those things aren't also within your control. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's, a, it's an all or nothing thing. You know what I mean? And I, I couldn't agree with you more, bro. I, I want to be respectful of your time, man. I know that 
know that your kids just got home and, you, and you're uh, itching to go spend some time with your family. So uh, I'll, I'll wrap this up here pretty quickly with just one quick question for you. If you had a video that, that ended up going viral and uh, all the people in, in the country would see it, what would you want to be the primary message of that video? I don't know if we can do much better than what we just said, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> yeah. just, especially yeah. now. In, yeah. in this day and time right now, there are a lot of people who have been deeply, deeply possessed by a mind virus of victimhood. Mm. And that is so totally destructive to them as individuals right? Like if I want to control a bunch of people, yeah, I'll tell them they're victims of some other enemy and I get them all revved up and sent against that enemy and then I win. It's called marketing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it can be. I mean, like that's what the Nazis did. That's what the communists did. That's what our government did for a long time during the Cold sure. War, right? If I could impart one piece of wisdom into people's brains, it would be the opposite of victimhood. It would be complete, total, radical responsibility for yourself. You don't have to take responsibility for other people. In fact, you shouldn't. Radical responsibility does not include being responsible for other stuff. It means taking response. Everything starts at home. I can't tell you how many people I know who are obsessed with whether it's the left or the right right now. It doesn't matter. Either side, completely obsessed. Like everything in their Facebook feed is, the other side's a hypocrite and they're awful. And Every single one of those people has really deep, serious emotional issues that they are ignoring and instead focusing their energy on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which doesn't have shit to do with their life, nothing to do with their life at all. It doesn't make them any happier. In fact, it's the definition of malignance because it makes them feel worse and everyone around them, right? If they would stop worrying about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and start worrying about how do I feel about how my mom treated me or my dad treated me? Or how do I feel about how I'm doing at work? Or how do I feel about myself? All of these fucking problems would go away because people would deal with their own shit. Stop focusing on all the things that are completely Because they don't, they're not about control. you and they don't actually yeah. matter to you. Right, right. And you can't control the outcome of what happens with them. So what are you doing? Just feeding that negativity bias that's so present in all of our brains, even more than it's already fed on a daily basis from all the other nonsense that goes on in the world. So- Tuck, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, man. Um, I want to move into the last segment really quick. Something just, uh, let's call the random round. Quick random questions, quick random answers. You ready? Yep. What profession other than your own do you think that it would have been fun to attempt? Assuming you have the skill set and knowledge to be able to accomplish whatever. Yeah, so I, I just spent the last weekend doing self-defense and combat pistol training with Tim Kennedy and his crew. Oh, so nice. being in special forces would be pretty fucking fun. Like, the, I, like I get a lot, I do jujitsu with those guys. I know them really well. Like I would have to struggle. It'd be hard for me to keep up with them physically and the other stuff, but that looks like it would have been real fun. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and chat for an hour, who would it be? Since we talked about him, I'd go with Jesus. Yeah, Jesus or Buddha. I'd have a hard time picking between those two. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts? I'm a reader. I'm a reader. Yeah, I'm like old school. What's a book that you would recommend to an audience, like holistically, not like necessarily a really narrow niche specific book, but a, a book that you'd recommend almost everybody? I'm dead serious. Not everyone, because there's no such thing as everyone, but almost everyone, if you read the book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, it will probably blow your fucking mind. Like it, that book was, I could barely consume a page at a time. Because every paragraph was such a gut punch. The title's not very good. It really should be called the, the drama of the sensitive child. But it's translated from German and blah, 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 blah. It's an amazing book that everyone now understands that parents can abuse their children. 
Alice Miller, the woman who wrote that book, is really the psychologist who first put that idea forward. Like that book came out in the early 70s. It's still cutting edge. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. I wake up about 6.30 when my 18-month-old wakes up. My wife sleeps in. She, she has to wake up at night, and then she gets to sleep in. That's our deal, right? So she wakes up, and so then she sleeps in, and I pick up the kid. I start making breakfast and tea and whatever. My other two usually get up by 7. We play around or maybe watch some SpongeBob or this or that, get them ready for school, and then by 8, they're off. And then, you know, I start work. I, like, I'm, I'm not a big, massive morning routine person. I spend my time with my kids and my wife. What is your go-to pump-up song? Right now, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. Because my son discovered Bubba Sparks on Spotify. He's six, one of my sons. And, and he, like, like, we have an Alexa in his room, and so he's discovered, like, all this stuff. And his favorite song is Country Folks by Bubba Sparks. <laughs> And it, and it's and it actually is kind of a cool pump-up song. Like, it really, I swear to God, man, he plays that constantly. Like, it is Bubba Sparks coming out of his room. Like, his last kick was Japanese lo-fi hip-hop. Now he's moved on to Bubba Sparks. So, I don't know what kind of kid I'm raising, but <laughs> it's what he likes. You know? What is something outside of business that you are just not very good at? I still don't think I'm very good at feeling my emotions. Like, mm-hmm. I've spent the last two years diving into this, and I feel like I have, I'm, five percent of the way there i might be better than a lot of people but i still feel like i the only measure for me is me like it doesn't matter if i'm better than you at something we're not competing and so at anything i don't care what anyone says unless it's like tennis right <laughs> or across the court other than weird artificial games we're not competing and so um i feel like i've barely started to get as good like i'm still not very good at it. And as we get everything wrapped up here, man, what is one place online where our listeners can go to connect with you the most? You can go to tuckermax.com. It's my website, or I'm on all the normal social media places, Twitter, Instagram. Perfect. So if you want to learn more about Tucker, pick up maybe some of his books that he's put out there or check out his publishing company, which is one thing that we did not get into today, but I'd highly recommend checking out that's uh, Scribe. I know several, several authors that have come out of there that have uh, written some amazing books that have gotten so many uh, amazing reviews and, uh, and they work with the best of the best and they're, they're really amazing what they do. So go check out Scribe if you want to learn more about potentially uh, getting your own book out there. But for everything from Tucker, just head over to tuckermax.com and uh, connect with him over there. Tucker, thanks so much for coming on the show today, man. Seriously, I had a fantastic time chatting with you. Thanks for having me, Travis. Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies, as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle Mastermind. There are already dozens of high quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls, there's accountability crews and more, all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in. That's byninnercircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We'll see you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, 
or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.